So this morning uh, we are continuing our reform series. Uh, throughout this series, uh, we've been looking at the Methodist or the Wesleyan movement as a Reformation movement, uh, kind of understanding that the Methodist movement was launched in part uh, because John Wesley was attempting to reform the Church of England. And while he wasn't attempting to start out on a new denomination, uh, that that Reformation movement led to the start of a new denomination. And so as a part of this, we are reading some of Wesley's core convictions uh, for the launch of the Methodist movement, and we're reading scriptures that are related to those core convictions. And as we do so, uh, we're asking ourselves these three questions. You know, how does God want to reform the current United Methodist Church? Uh, how is God calling our church to be reformed? Uh, and uh, in some ways, we're, we're kind of being reformed whether we want to or not, because uh, we're, we're having to move about. We're having to change some things up. We're having to, to deal with some different things. And it not, might not necessarily be what we would have wanted or, or desired, but my hope is that God can bring something good out of it all as we are in that process of being reformed. And I think that's, you know, a, a, a good metaphor for life, that in life, as we allow God to work within us, to reform us, to transform us, it might not always be uh, the, the thing that feels the best or that feels the good. Uh, sometimes it's hard to let go of things that have held on to us or that we've held on to for a long time. Uh, sometimes it's hard for us to set aside certain parts of our being because God is calling us to live or to be uh, in a different way. Um, reforming ourselves, allowing God to reform us, comes with some difficulties, some challenges at times, but we trust that God does something good in the midst of it, that who we are on the other side is better because of God's work within us. And so we're asking ourselves, you know, how might God be reforming the United Methodist Church? How might God be calling us to be reformed as a church? And how does God want to reform me? What does God want to do in my life to shape me, to make me, uh, to mold me? This morning, our John Wesley reading comes from a pamphlet called The Nature, Design, and General Rules of Our United Societies. Uh, and there's a copy of it that's out there in our uh, lobby area. And so we invite you to take it and read it. It's three pages long. Not that big of a read, uh, but in it, it lists out uh, this exact thing, the nature, design, and rules of the United Societies. And, and these rules are kind of broken down into three categories. Uh, oftentimes, it's been boiled down to say, do no harm, do good, and attend upon the ordinances of God. Uh, and in another sermon series, we might explore those three rules a little bit further. Uh, but for now, I just invite you to take them and read them on your own. Uh, I will just say briefly, the do no harm phrase oftentimes gets thrown out quite a bit uh, as, a, as a kind of a catch-all statement for something that anybody wants to claim. Wesley had specifics that he mentioned uh, when he was talking about do no harm. And it'd be worthwhile to read and see what he meant uh, versus just kind of it being that catch-all claim for us. Uh, and the thing about these general rules that Wesley laid out is that they weren't just for anybody and everybody, right? It wasn't like, these are good for everybody to attend to. I mean, they would be, but in particular, these general rules that Wesley laid out were intended for a specific audience, people who uh, decided that they were going to be a part of uh, a Wesley small group, which he called a class meeting, uh, and so these class meetings had a leader who would check on each person throughout the week, who would inquire about their souls, uh, collect an offering, and would also advise, comfort, reprove, or exhort as there was a need. 
Uh, these class meetings were the backbone of the early Methodist movement. And it's kind of interesting because this day and age, you know, small groups or family groups or cell groups or discipleship D groups, some places call them. I mean, those are all in vogue, but they were all aspects of the early Methodist movement before they ever became the thing to be in style, before Sunday school even existed uh, or any other kind of group meeting became fashionable. Wesley had designed class meetings as places for uh, people to gather together uh, to experience a renewing presence of God within their lives. And so I would say that gathering in small groups is a part of our DNA. And if you're not a part of a group, I would highly encourage you to sign up to be a part of one because it's who we are as we are following in this Wesleyan, this Methodist movement. So this uh, general rules pamphlet where Wesley lays out these rules for class meetings, he also lays out uh, who can participate in one, who is allowed to be a part of a class meeting. And this is kind of our main thought for the, for the day. Uh, Wesley says, uh, there's only one condition previously required of those who desire admission into these societies, a desire to flee from the wrath to come and to be saved from their sins. If you want to be a Methodist, you must have a desire to flee from the wrath to come and be saved from your sins. And that's the condition that Wesley lays out. That's what John Wesley prescribed as a condition to be a part of this movement. And people in the early Methodist movement would have heard this question, do you have a desire to flee from the wrath to come thousands of times over the course of their lives? Those early societies, those class meetings were designed to be places where people could be transformed by God's grace, saved from their sins, and kept out of the way of God's coming judgment on the world. Now I realize, as we are in the 21st century, uh, that we've kind of moved away from talking or thinking about the wrath of God. Our own uh, Methodist hesitancies in the 21st century uh, kind of calls us to no longer ask this question. Do you desire to flee from the wrath to come? And I I don't necessarily like to talk about it myself, honestly. Uh, I would much rather focus my attention on the love of God, the grace of God, the peace and the joy that God offers to us. But I'd say apart from understanding the wrath of God against sin... We miss out on the totality of what grace means. Uh, Apart from understanding the wrath of God against sin, we we miss out on the totality of what salvation means, uh, of what it means that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Say, unfortunately, over the past uh, hundred years, as we've lost this, we've uh, kind of moved into this space where, as H. Richard Niebuhr describes it, we have a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a ministry of Christ without a cross. But we've kind of undid the whole thing. In other words, what Niebuhr would be saying is that you can't have one without the other. The cross of Christ does not make sense apart from a God who judges sin. Kind of echoing that in a, in a Good Friday sermon, uh, prior to becoming Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, uh, then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, he preached about the suffering of Christ on the cross. And it's Jesus' suffering on the cross that reveals to us both the gravity of our sin and the seriousness of judgment. And in this sermon, Cardinal Ratzinger asked, he said, Can it be 
that despite all of our expressions of consternation in the face of evil and innocent suffering, that we are all too prepared to trivialize the mystery of evil? Have we accepted only the gentleness and love of God and quietly set aside the word of judgment? Yet as we contemplate the suffering of the Son, we see more clearly the seriousness of sin and how it needs to be fully atoned if it is to be overcome. What he's saying is that to downplay the wrath of God is to downplay the significance of sin. We trivialize evil to the point where we think it's something that we can keep under control, that we have the ability or the power on our own to be able to do it. If everybody just believed the right things, if everybody just learned the right things, if we can teach our kids the right things, we might be able to stop evil altogether. If we, if we could get everybody to vote the right way for the right person, you know, then, then we would stop evil altogether. But in doing so, we downplay the work of the cross, the work of Jesus. We make him out to be somebody who just teaches us the right things, who who models us, uh, love to us. But in doing so, we miss out on how he atones for our sins, how he is the one who makes us right with God. And this is why the Bible is so important for us. Why it's important for us to read the Bible. And, and I love devotions. I love that we have upper rooms and daily breads available. But even as we read those, we have, you know, two sentences and then we have a whole, about two pages of what somebody else says about it. Uh, the temptation for us is just to take what somebody else says, to hear a catchy slogan and then run with it. We like things that sound nice in our ears. Yet apart from being grounded in scripture, we create a superficial kind of faith, a superficial kind of religion. Uh, it's a religion that a few researchers, um, social sciences, religious uh, researchers kind of observed and noted uh, as they did some research about religious attitudes in America. Uh, they did the study a few years ago and they really pointed out how we suffer from biblical illiteracy, how we have this idea of God and a faith and religion that strays far from uh, the Christian religion. They said even as they did the study and there's many people who would check the box that says Christian, most of what they believed doesn't line up with what scripture says. They called this new religion that they found moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, and the gospel of moralistic therapeutic deism goes something like, I'm a spiritual person who believes in God, however I choose to define that word. My chief end is to be happy and fulfilled, knowing that I can call on God when I need something. I'm a good person, and good people go to heaven when they die. And that's kind of what a lot of people who are checking the box as Christian really believe. But if we contrast that with Christian thought, with the scriptures, uh, uh, God is not something that we can create or come up with or decide who we want God to be. God is revealed to us in the scriptures, in the Bible, in his word for us. God is revealed to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If we want to know what God is like, we have to look at what the scripture says. We don't get to define that word. Uh, Instead of our chief end being to be happy and to be fulfilled, uh, what uh, Christian theology, what Christian thought has taught us, and this is uh, back in one of the early Reformation catechisms, what is the chief end of man? 
to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That that's what we were created for. We weren't created to be happy and fulfilled. That sounds nice, but that's not the purpose of our being. Our purpose is to glorify God, to enjoy him forever. A lot of times this knowing that I can go on God when I need something, we make God out to be this genie in a bottle. And if I rub the lamp the right way, out pops the genie and grants my three wishes. Uh, And if my three wishes didn't get granted, then somehow that's a knock on God. But instead, Scripture reveals a God who does care for us, who desires to be in a personal, uh, connected relationship with us, who desires prayer to not only be about getting what we can get from our gumball machine in the sky, uh, but to be for us uh, a source of strength and peace in the midst of what we go through, to be a, a supernatural power at work within us and through us, a God who has his own will. That might not always be our own. And when we think about, you know, I'm a good person and good people go to heaven when they die. Scripture says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says that all of our good deeds are like filthy rags to God's presence. What gets us into heaven isn't checking the right boxes, being a good person. It's Jesus who has done the work of bringing us to a place of being at peace with God. And that's what we're going to hear in our scripture reading this morning. And so I want us to kind of contrast this moralistic therapeutic deism, uh, this uh, avoidance of fleeing the wrath to come with what we hear as we read scripture. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5. We're reading in verses uh, 1 through 11, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Uh, Throughout the first half of Romans, Paul is articulating what faith in Jesus looks like, uh, why faith in Jesus is important, and he's telling us exactly why Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are so important. And so we hear these words, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, Will we be saved through him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So starting in verse 1. Paul says, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ, it means that there once was a time when we were not at peace with God and that Jesus did something to bring about that change. 
Right? There was a time before you placed your faith in Jesus that you and God were not at peace. In fact, in verse 10, Paul says that we were enemies of God. An enemy uh, is somebody who dislikes or hates another, who seeks to harm, contradict, and fight the one that he is set against. So an enemy of God is somebody who opposes the presence and the purposes of God in this world. And I think we might see this in two different kind of ways. Uh, you might be somebody who would I consider an active enemy of God. You know, you, you kind of set out on purpose to contradict God's presence, God's activity, uh, to fight the ways of God. I am, you know, you might say I'm actively opposed to God. It would be I am anti-God, and I think it's all horrible and uh, it's it's all a mess, and and everything with that is wrong. You're actively opposing God's purposes in the world, or. There might be ways that we uh, might be what I would consider passive enemies of God. And what I mean is that it's not intentionally setting out to oppose God's plan and purpose. Uh, my, my thoughts, my, my attitude isn't saying, you know what, I'm just setting my life against God. But because of the way that sin works in me, uh, I, it's what I end up doing. My desires are to pursue my way and not God's way. I want what I want and I'm not concerned with God's will and God's way. And, and so I'm opposed to God. I'm living as an enemy of God, even if that's not what I'm setting out in my intentions to do. I mean, I can think of times in my life when my thought process wasn't about, you know, well, how can I oppose what God wants to do in the world? Like, how can I set to undermine or destroy God's work? I wasn't actively thinking as though I was an enemy of God, but yet in my life, I was living according to my own purposes and my own plans. I was, I was seeking to fulfill my own desires rather than God's desires. And in these times, I did a lot of things that caused hurt for others, whether it was directly or indirectly. It caused hurt. My intention wasn't to oppose God. My intention was just to live for myself. But in doing so, I was living as an enemy of God. So whether it's actively opposed to God or just passively living in disregard to God, either way, apart from Jesus, we have each lived as enemies of God. And so as enemies of God, we are destined for God's wrath. This can be a hard thing to hear, because I think for many of us who would probably identify as the the passive enemy of God, uh, I'm still a pretty good person. Like, I don't know why that would be my destiny. I don't know why that would be what I'm destined for. But a part of that is that we have to understand that God's wrath is not like our own. God isn't uh, like having this cosmic temper tantrum because God's not getting what he wants. God's not the big bully in the sky who needs to be appeased. Uh, but, but apart from God's wrath, we really can't make a full sense and understanding of what the Bible portrays as being God's love. Because God's love isn't this sentimental kind of love. It's, it's a holy love. It involves not only compassion, kindness, and mercy beyond measure, but also indignation against injustice and opposition to anything that is evil. Being enemies of God, whether active or passive, we are all participants in the evil that's being done in the world around us. And it would be hard to say that God is good when, if God doesn't do anything to address evil. It would be hard to say that God is good if God doesn't offer us any opportunity to flee from that evil. And what scripture says is not only are we participants in the evil that's being done, but we are also on our own incapable of doing anything to stop it. Paul says in verse six, 
while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. We are weak, incapable, unable to stop the evil that we see in the world around us. No matter how brilliant we think we are, and I've got a lot of great ideas, right? If I could just get enough people to listen and follow these ideas, no matter how bright we think we are, we're not able to stop evil on our own. No matter how persuasive or inspiring we are, we are weak on our own to stop evil. This, this morning, uh, we're going to baptize a baby in uh, little Autumn. And uh, one of the things that I love about baptizing babies is just how clearly it shows our weakness as well as God's grace. Right, babies come into the world completely incapable of doing anything on their own apart from making messes. Right, some really smelly messes, right? Uh, and if they didn't have somebody to care for them, they would just sit in their mess. And there's probably a sermon that we could talk about how we as adults just sometimes sit in our mess. Uh, but that's a different day. Um, but, but apart from somebody to take care of them, right? Somebody uh, to feed them, somebody to clothe them, to change them, to wash them, somebody to offer them shelter and protection from the elements. Babies are helpless to do anything on their own for themselves. And this is the state the scripture describes us being in. We are weak. We are helpless on our own. But it does tell us this, that while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, that God came to us in our helpless estate in the person of Jesus. That God took on flesh in the person of Jesus, lived among us in all of our stench, was tempted like us but didn't sin. And at the right time, Jesus died for us. God proves his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then we read in verse 9, Since we've now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God? In Jesus, God has offered each of us peace. On the cross, Jesus not only covers over our sin, removing the guilt of sin from our lives, but he also reconciles us with God saving us from God's wrath against injustice, evil, and all that opposes his will. This is something that, that Wesley understood, why he set up these class meetings for those who had a desire to flee the wrath to come, who desired to live a holy life and be saved from their sins. Wesley understood this, as did the biblical writers and the early church fathers, that God's grace and God's judgment were both necessary aspects of God's character. Right? We cannot save ourselves. We must repent and believe that God can do it for us. And then when we repent, when we believe, God's grace uh, begins to shape our character. We invite uh, Christ to enter in and he begins to reform us, to transform us more and more into the image of Christ be more and more like the people God created us to be. And this is the heart of the gospel, of the, the Christian gospel. That God has set out to put the world right. And so God begins by putting people right. And then he invites us to be a right-putting people who participate in that ongoing work. We flee from the wrath of God into the arms of grace. 
Grace that overcomes our brokenness. Grace that changes our will so that we desire nothing but God and to do his will. And so this morning, uh, as individuals and as a church, I'm going to ask us that classical John Wesley question. Do you desire to flee from the wrath to come and be saved from your sins? If you'd say yes, I'm going to ask that you would do two things. First, I'm going to invite you to say a prayer with me. Uh, And the second would be to sign up for a small group if you're not already in one. So you can continue to pursue that life of holiness. Let us pray together. I'm going to invite you to repeat after me. Dear God, I know that I am a sinner. There is nothing that I can do to save myself. I confess my complete helplessness to forgive my own sin or to work my way to heaven. I ask you to forgive me. I believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so that I can have peace with you. I turn from my sins and invite you into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow Jesus. As my Savior and Lord. Lord. In Jesus' name. name. Amen. Amen.